You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. It gives me great pleasure now to welcome you all uh, to our second session uh, today, which is on fake news and uh, post-truth. Um, it's one of those sessions that we've all we're already, we've been flirting with it already. Um, uh, uh, throughout our discussions and it's a real pleasure to have as our uh, moderator for this session uh, Stephen Ray who is the editor-in-chief uh, independent news and uh, media group. The uh, uh, INM has been a media partner on the event last night and on the symposium so it really is a pleasure uh, to have Stephen with us but also Cormac Burke who has been partnering crime and helping us organise uh, uh, everything. So, Stephen, if I can uh, hand over to you. Good morning, everybody. Um, I did uh, listen in on the last uh, session, and it was really, really interesting. So today's session, or this afternoon's session, this morning's session, is post-truth, which leads me to wonder when was the year of pre-truth. Uh, in Jonathan Swift's essay on political lying, he comments poignantly that the greatest liar had his believers, and it happens that if the lie be believed only for an hour, it had done its work, and there is no further occasion for it. Falsehood flies, and truth comes limping after it, so that when men come to be undeceived, it is too late, the jest is over, and the tale had had its effect. Call those words must resonate with Hillary Clinton. In what has been deemed the post-truth era, it is not solely political line which is in question, but an entire mach- machine of misinformation which is readily available and targeted willing listeners. Debate has become increasingly polarised and expert comment has been rejected in place of opinion and personal belief. Even before Brexit and Trump, lies, rumours, mudslinging and gossip spread without any checks on Facebook, helped elect populist president, Rodrigo Duterte, in the Philippines. The phenomenon next moved to the UK, where the Leave campaign, with its messages of nationalism, xenophobia, and anti-EU rhetoric, was five times louder on social media than the Remainers. In the US, the swing to Donald Trump in the last weeks of the presidential election was helped enormously by industrial levels of fake news spread on Facebook and sponsored by Russia. A study by the University of Oxford has shown that nearly a quarter of web content shared by Twitter users in the battleground state of Michigan during the final days of the US election was so-called fake news. In Spain last year, three of the most commented on stories on social media were all false. All the stories, the introduction of, subscri- of conscription, limiting access to third-level education, and a ban on religious processions so as not to offend Muslims, were designed to stimulate negative emotions and were all lies. This is at the heart of the matter. Facebook is an emotional medium. Something that makes you angry, sad or happy is most likely to be shared with your friends. Fake news with its makeup of lies and simplifications is designed to make the user angry about a subject or person and is hugely manipulative. The more the lies are shared, the more the public opinion is shaped. A meeting of UNESCO in Paris recently heard that fake news, or as the Oxford Internet Institute calls it, junk news, is eroding dem- democratic institutions. The problem has become so big that scientific facts are now openly being questioned, such as the link between smoking and certain types of cancer, 
and, of course, climate change. You would think that, given the enormous consequences for society, Facebook would be taking the matter seriously. Well, think again. Facebook has become fat and powerful from having no checks and balances on the content it carries. So I'm looking forward to a fascinating debate this morning with our very distinguished panel. We'll be starting with Joseph Slaughter, who's Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He specializes in literature, law, and socio-cultural history of the Global South, particularly Latin America and Africa. We'll be followed by my colleague from County Kerry, Dr. Fauncia Ryan. He's an assistant professor in the Loyola Institute, School of Religions, Peace Studies and Theology in Trinity College, Dublin. Her major research interests are truth, the virtue of truth-telling in Thomas Aquinas, and how his thought might engage in debate and the formation of society in a post-truth culture, and the development of new ideas in the theology of leadership and our nation. I had the pleasure of listening to Todd Gitlin last night in, in one of the first debates. Todd is a professor and chair of the School of Journalism at Columbia University. He has written 16 books, including Occupy Nation, The Roots, The Spirit and the Promise of Occupy Wall Street, and The Whole World is Watching. Mass Media and the Making and Unmaking of the New Left. He's a columnist for Tablet and a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, and many magazines. And finally, Daryl Jones is a professor of English and dean of the Faculty of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences in Trinity College. His major research and teaching interest is in the general area of popular literature, particularly in the fields of horror fiction and film, and of Victorian and Edwardian adventure fiction. The panel will look at the factors which have led us to this point and what lies ahead. Each speaker will speak between 9 and 10 minutes, and we'll take your questions at the end. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you so much, Stephen. Does this work? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I have to ask your indulgence on two fronts. One, I'm getting over a cold, and so I'm exploring Irish cold medicine for the first time. <laughs> don't know quite how that's affecting me. Um, and the other is that I lost, I lost half this paper to Google Drive last night. So the second half is notes. As I, um, somebody else said this morning, I'll follow, I'll follow through and stick to my time limit here. Um, one thing I want to say, just to frame this, is that I think I probably pick up on a lot of the themes that were raised in, actually the, in the conversation at the end of the last panel in particular the question of deconstruction. Um, and I think that my response will be that the, the answer of deconstruction as the, the place to lay the blame for this um, is too simple in some sense because the genealogy I'm gonna offer um, is a genealogy that, that actually looks at things that were themselves responding to deconstruction in a certain kind of way. So two weeks ago, on October 25th, it started as a relatively good news day for Donald Trump and the ongoing investigation into his campaign's collusion with Russian agents. The Washington Post had just broken the story that the Clinton campaign had helped to fund the now infamous dodgy sex dossier, as the Daily Mail calls it, buying the research from an unidentified Republican client. Of course, this sliver of good news wouldn't last long. Later that same day, Julian Assange announced that an official from the Trump campaign had approached him asking for help getting Clinton's 33,000 deleted emails and indictments were being drawn up by the special investigator against a number of senior officials in Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Still, President Trump insisted that he had been vindicated. In a pattern we've all come to expect, he took to Twitter to get his version of the story out. So, from at real Donald Trump on October 25th, he wrote, Clinton campaign and DNC paid for research that led to the anti-Trump fake news dossier. The victim here is the president, at Fox News. 
There is nothing especially new about Donald Trump's tweet. It repeats many of his major themes. The Clinton campaign and the DNC are the real criminals, the colluders with Russia. Any news critical of Trump is fake news. And Trump is, despite all appearances, the victim of other people's lying schemes. Perhaps the only thing missing, probably from want of room, in his 140-character attack is an emphatic believe me appended to the statement. Believe me is the dangling imperative that Trump drops at the end of a sentence to insist that he is the most qualified, the most insightful, the most honest person ever to hold the office of the president. I know more about ISIS than the generals do, believe me, he claimed repeatedly during the campaign. We are going to get rid of the illegal immigrants, and it's going to happen within one hour after I take office. Believe me, he reassured his popular base, fanning the flames of working class, or more accurately, not quite working class, white resentment. This tax reform is not good for me, believe me, he said recently, despite the estimates that his family fortune would benefit to the tune of $600 million in tax breaks. Believe me does little to accredit Trump's claims. Instead, of course, the verbal, ha the verbal hashtag tends to mark what's come before it as a likely fabrication, certainly an exaggeration, if not a sign of wholesale duplicity, the speech tick of a salesman shill, and a serial liar. But it does something else I want to argue, something that has to do with victimhood. I'm interested in these markers of so-called post-truth and in the Orwellian crisis of truth that they point to. But I cite this particular recent tweet because it explicitly yokes the problem of truth to the question of victimhood. Trump's logic goes something like this. The president is the victim of fake news. Fake news dominates the media landscape in the US, disseminating false narratives about the president. Thus, the truth that the president claims to possess, the truth that is supposedly suppressed by the dominant news media, is of a special nature. It is the truth of the victim the putatively disenfranchised. The victim here is the location of truth. It is this relation between truth and victimhood that I want to explore today. Trump's truth claims almost always emerge when he is also trying to claim the position of victim, or claiming to speak on behalf of the victims of neoliberal globalization. What I want to do in my short time is to offer a preliminary a partial and an intentionally, intentionally polemical genealogy of this post-truth that tracks some of its primary components to the late 1980s, at least in the US context. As I see it, our current crisis of truth arises through a combination of multiple transformations or inflections of the logic of truth at large that occurred over the course of the past few decades in popular and political culture as well as in academic and intellectual circles. Indeed, my account will implicate some of the more important developments in the humanities and social sciences, the narrative and ethical terms, for example, as well as my own work in fields such as human rights and narrative, post-colonialism, and ethnic and third world literatures, my fields of training. In the creation of this category of post-truth, what we might also recognize as the neoliberalized truth, or entrepreneurial truth. In the 1980s and 90s, during the so-called culture wars in the US, fields such as post-colonial studies, feminist and gender studies, ethnic studies, and trauma studies, all of which I participated in, challenged the traditional disciplines and their Eurocentric and patriarchal biases, attempting to open up spaces 
for the voices of people and peoples who had traditionally been marginalized, neglected, or suppressed by the dominant paradigms of national history, literary quality, and socio-political institutions and administrations. One way to understand those multicultural pushes was that they attempted to recuperate, to make space for the subaltern as an agent of history, for the voice of the subaltern to be read through the gaps of the prose of colonialism or the patriarchy or enlightenment culture. In other words, those, those, those multicultural efforts sought to recuperate the voices to make space for the voices of the historically marginalized, the dispossessed, the disenfranchised. They insisted on what I have called in some of my, in my work on human rights, the humanist equation between life and narrative. An equation that insists that everyone has a story, that every story is valuable and equally valid, and that every life story should be respected in some sense. Everyone has a right, that is, to narrate to, to their own story and to narrate their own story. I made this argument in my very first publication in 1997 in, the, in Human Rights Quarterly. Many other scholars in anthropology, in history, radical legal scholars were making the same arguments in their, in their disciplinary journals. It's now become commonplace to hear everyone talking everywhere about the narrative, about getting the narrative right. Human rights and humanitarian organizations are all interested in getting the narrative right, hearing the personal stories of individuals. The in, those individual personal stories that multicultural movements made space for were obviously salutary, in the sense that they challenged the narrow categories of history, of literary quality, and the social order. But I would now argue also that they sublimated some of those older values of politics, of, politi of human dignity, of solidarity, solidarity expressions, in favor of valorizing the individual personal story, of giving the individual identity authenticity through the personal story. Collectively, and in their own different ways, each of these academic movements carved out a space for the historically disadvantaged and disenfranchised to speak, for the, for the subaltern to speak if she so wished. And in so doing, they also reified a category of truth that has become attached to the position of the victim, a personal truth that is largely incontestable, perhaps even unverifiable, in the sense that it exists as a form of truth beyond the ordinary empirical methods for establishing or verifying facts. In the, in the academy, this changed what we read and how we read it. In the popular realm, it fed the memoir boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the huge explosion in autobiographical writings by women, ethnic minorities, and men living on the margins of society. It also led to the speak your truth or my truth movements. Um, I'm thinking here of multiple um, versions of this, of, of motivational speakers, and you just put the phrase speak your truth, the number of motiva motivational speakers around the, around the country in the US who are trying to teach you how to identify and therefore speak your truth, therefore discover your authenticity, to hold on to a, a category called My Truth. One named Mike Robbins, his, his slogan is, be real, not right. In the political realm, the valorization on the per of the personal truth of individual experience found its most elaborate express form of expression in truth commissions. In the late 1990s, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example, theorized four distinct forms of truth. Factual truth, social truth, restorative or healing truth, and narrative truth, or personal truth. Those four forms are intertwined, and they're difficult to isolate. But in general, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission 
understood that the categories of factual and narrative truth could be in opposition or in contradiction. The commission, it argued, assisted in the creation of a narrative truth and thereby contributed to the process of reconciliation by ensuring that the truth about the past included the validation of individual subjective experiences of people who had previously been silenced or voices. You can hear the echoes of the academic versions of these arguments. This is a truth to be validated, not a truth to be verified, a truth in which subjective identity is to be, about, is to be validated. That is one strain of the genealogy I would like to tell. The other I'm going to be much quicker about to keep to, to, keep to my time. The other strain runs concurrently with that kind of left, left, um, left liberal strain. <coughs> Academic conservatives, of course, responded to the liberal moves by feminists, ethnic studies, post-colonialism, etc., accusing them of dangerous cultural relativism, of simplistic identitarian politics, challenging the universal categories. At that same time, political conservatives began a wholesale attack on social programs like affirmative action, arguing that, in fact, things like affirmative action granted advantage to those who were, who were the beneficiaries of affirmative action, putting the white population, the historically advantaged population, at some kind of disadvantage. In other words, the attacks on affirmative action that occur at the same time as this move towards the valorization of individual, uh, individual narratives positioned the white working white male classes now as the victims of the majority of the, of the dominant structure of the dominant system. In other words, the historical position was now of advantage, was now being recast as the position of injury. I would argue that the category that we're calling post-truth is attached to this position of injury. In this regard, post-truth emerges as both a response to and an assault on the left's version of my truth, of speaking my truth. It is the construction of resentment against my truth, but also its right-wing correlative. Post-truth, in fact, shares the basic, basic structural features of narrative truth and my truth. It's incontestable, unverifiable, and therefore unfalsifiable. It's personal, it's suspicious, even hostile to the dominant story, when, the dominance, when it needs an enemy, the dominant story is the mainstream media. It is attached and therefore validated by the position of injury, by, the, uh, by a claim to being injured. Post-truth and my truth are two sides of the same coin, I want to argue. The narrative currency of the victim in a culture of injury. In a culture of injury. Thank you. Out of equity, one person owes another the manifestation of the truth. Or so says the medieval theologian and philosopher Thomas Aquinas. Is Thomas correct? Does truth-telling really matter that much? We live in an era which has invented the term post-truth and seems to be quite self-satisfied to brandish it about as a characteristic of our era as if it doesn't really seem to matter all that much. My argument is contrary. With Aquinas, I contend that truth and the activity of truth-telling matter for the good of the individual and for the good of society. There are three points that I wish to make. 
The first point I want to bring to our attention is that truth is a concept that occurs in a myriad of human endeavours, not just one. That is to say, truth applies not just to the areas of politics or media, wherein the concept of post-truth is mainly discussed. For example, as we know, the concept of truth is foundational to the activity of mathematics. 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. It is true that 2 plus 2 is equal to 4, and 10 tenths is 100. This is not a matter of opinion or self-assertion. It is so. Similarly, two molecules of hydrogen and one of oxygen give us one of water. This is true. We can find another very good example, I think, in the area of sport. There are many ball games played that are called football. We recognize a true game of Gaelic football when we see it played by its own rules and genius. And a true game of soccer when it is played by its rules. In a second sense, in a very important sense, when we see a game, for example, the All-Ireland Final being played with a whole series of fouls, off-the-ball offences, and other unsavoury acts, then we say this was not a true game of Gaelic, and the winners are not said to have had a true victory. Some of you may remember the Heineken Cup quarter-final tie in 2009, Leinster against Harlequins. Harlequins were five six down in the dying minutes and wanted to switch a player, Williams, for a specialist kicker. They made the change under the blood injury rule, which permits bleeding players to be removed for treatment. The Guardian tells us, Williams was seen removing a capsule from his sock, placing it in his mouth and chewing on it before being taken off the field. He then winked broadly towards his team bench as the fake blood oozed. Thus ends the Guardian. This we call cheating. This was not a true substitution. Had Harlequins won, it would not have been a true victory. The game was not being played truthfully. A third example we might take from the world of cuisine. On a recent television programme, I overheard Rick Stein comment on a dish he had tasted. The only thing I can say is, is that the taste is so true, so authentic, so Italian. We have criteria for truth in many areas of life. The criteria will be relative to the context. We have different criteria for rugby and for Gaelic for maths and for cuisine. Another example can be found in music. With Irish music, people have criteria for what is true Irish music and untrue. We might and we do indeed debate the criteria and the judgment, but nonetheless, these are debates about truth. The second point I want to make is that truth in each of these contexts is always a common endeavour and always a dynamic search. So let's return to rugby for a moment. There is still an ongoing refining of the truths and practices of rugby. But it is still a search, a communal search for the truth of the game. What is the best way to play a game of rugby? Supposing the rugby community were no longer to agree on set criteria for a game of rugby and decide not to search for it in a communal way, it is obvious that this would be disastrous for the future of the game. This communal search for truth is why universities were founded. At every graduation ceremony here in Trinity, 
We are reminded that medieval universities were founded to advance learning and understanding via the dis disputatio, the communal exploration of ideas. Argument and discussion, debate, all these are key to a good university education. They are indispensable in the communal search for the truth. So what have I said thus far? Firstly, the truth is a constituent of a myriad of human endeavours, not just politics or media. The concept of post-truth is usually used with reference to the media or to the political sphere without keeping an eye on how fundamentally distorted all our human endeavours would be if we extended the concept of post-truth to all these other fields. Secondly, the journey for truth is always a communal search, and it depends on the community being prepared in the search for truth for a particular area, to being prepared to continue in the search for truth in a particular area, such as sport. If the community gives up on this, that search, it is pretty obvious that this particular endeavour will fall apart and have no future. No more Six Nations in rugby, no more American football or baseball, and no more disputatio in the university. The third point, and perhaps the most important point I want to make, is that truth-telling in any of these endeavours is a virtue in the sense of a skill, a skill of character that human beings have to acquire in a given context in order that there be human flourishing. So let's return for a moment to the theologian Thomas Aquinas. For Aquinas, the virtue of truth-telling is connected with the virtue of justice, of justice-making. As he said, out of equity, one person owes another a manifestation of the truth. This, I think, brings the question of truth and truth-seeking right to the heart of human communal living and human communal flourishing. We have become very used to the cliché that the first casualty of war is truth. Nobody can dispute its current aptness. What is, I think, depressing and disturbing is the way in which its obviousness is recognised without, apparently, much residue of outrage being felt. It is as though truthfulness were a luxury commodity in our political life, our public living together. Something sadly, but indisputably, dispensable in crisis, but perhaps to be dusted down and reinstated when things are easier. In today's world, it is not just in the crisis of war or other crises that truth is seen as the first victim. Post-truth, fake news have become dictionary terms, with an accompanying deep-seated complacency about their aptness for our public life. In contrast, Aquinas' view is that truth-telling is indispensable to human flourishing and constitutive to the communal virtue of creating the just society. Ambrose of Milan in the 4th century described justice as that which renders to each what is its what is its? The Latin word for this is suum. What belongs to it? The essential idea of use, of justice, according to the theologian Victor White, is that one should possess what one ought to have. The verb to be, for White, demands the verb to have. By reason of the very fact that a being is such and such a being, it needs to have more than it is. It has of its very nature, which according to White it receives from the Creator, certain needs which must be realised 
if it is to fulfil its purpose. Indeed, if it is to fulfil any purpose at all. Certain goods belong to it by right. And that right for, for right derives ultimately from the divine plan and purpose for it. They are inherent in its created existence. They are owing to it, and there is obligation on the part of others to render it in the give and take which constitutes human society. To quote from Aquinas again, Uniquique debitor quod sum est. To each is due what is its. It seems to me important to bring this vision to the table today and to argue for its relevance for human flourishing. It reminds us that we deny only at our peril that the human is a social animal. We owe one another whatever is necessary for the preservation of human society. It is impossible for us to live well together unless we can believe one another, trust one another, declare the truth to one another. Without the proper cultivation of the virtue of truth-telling, human society becomes fundamentally corrupt. Just as in the sphere of sport, without trust in the truth of the rules of the game, the sport becomes void. Thank you very much. because, uh, as it happens, I, I want to compress into nine minutes um, an argument about what happened between Aquinas and multiculturalism. <laughs> <laughs> the Enlightenment happened. <laughs> I want to argue that fake news, disinformation, propaganda, panic-driven assaults on evidence and logic, all that is, are embedded in a hoarier tradition. And it is the tradition, roughly speaking, of the counter-enlightenment. Um, no disrespect to the greatest of the counter-enlightenment, the Irishman Edmund Burke. Um, it is a tradition, and it is an intellectually substantial tradition. It is concurrent with, and has continued to be concurrent with the count with the Enlightenment. One consequence of the Enlightenment is the what we could call the hegemony of science. That is, science is held or has been held by its advocates as the embed the the embodiment. Of a, uh, of, a of, of, of universal understandings that, that are possible and that can be arrived at by following certain <laughs> rules and um, furthering the work of communal ascertainment, which we were just hearing about. Now, uh, now I'm going to hop and skip through a century. Um, Liberal nationalism was, of the 19th century was one product of the, uh, arguably it, it had a, a, a foot in the Enlightenment and a foot in the counter-Enlightenment. It was a revolt against empire in behalf of locality and specificity. 
And it was, as you know, a glorious, a seriously glorious failure. That is to say, most of the nationalist revolts in the short run against the German, the Austro-Hungarian, and so on empires um, came proper. Um, the nationalism that um, proved to be more, what should we say, entrenched, was illiberal nationalism. That is to say, the belief that national boundaries were not only linguistic and uh, folkloric, but also philosophical, ethnic, uh, and in that sense, fundamental. Um, the, the undertow of the uh, insistence on contrary truth, on truth on, on local or, or parochial uh, or partial uh, or uh, uh, nationally uh, enshrined truth, but developed as a, a tradition. America, um, very much in the hands of the fundamentalist um, uh, uh, a fundamentalist with Protestantism at the turn of the 20th century. The upshot of many of the counter-enlightenment tendencies as they fused with nation-state uh, idolatry uh, was the emergence of the, eventually, the emergence of what I would call, in reference to what we heard this morning, an anti- globalist international, which is in fact, which is what we're contending with. So the, what has been put forward is that um, the legitimate source of not only uh, political authority, but the authority of truth lies in a, what I think of as a sort of archipelago of walled islands, um, which are conceptualized as revolts against the bulldozer of modernity. Uh, this is where we make our stand against fill in the blank, the neoliberalism, uh, European uh, against Brussels, and so on. Um, now, alongside propaganda and the, um, uh, the, the, the diversity of propagandistic versions of truth, which have a, a, a long history, has, has, has arisen, I think, a very interesting and very dangerous cultural phenomenon. Um, it uh, had, was named by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt as the rise of bullshit. <laughs> uh, that was the title of his best-selling book, which was basically an article from the philosophy journal that got repackaged during George Bush's uh, administration. And a uh, nifty little book with uh, that big word on the cover, bullshit. Bullshit, uh, in Frankfurt's definition, was was speech that was not intent. Was was different from a lie. Was those who lie pay tribute to the truth. That is to say, in some level, they know the truth and they transgress it. Uh, bullshit was spoken without regard to whether what is being said is true or not. And, well, I could spend the next nine hours uh, illustrating um, the um, uh, ascendancy of bullshit. Along with the ascendancy of bullshit in public discourse, 
I would say, is also the rise of a kind of the, the rise of the cynical shrug <laughs> as a way of navigating um, the perhaps undiscoverability of truth. And to me, in a word, the word is whatever. Um, this is true, no, that's true, whatever. You know, in, the, in the domain of whatever, um, uh, the, this, the search for truth ends. I first, I first was aware of, it was Bob Dole when he was running for president. What year was that, 88? Oh, no. Uh, 96. 96. He was the first presidential candidate I heard say, whatever. And I thought, okay, it's arrived. Um, so in this atmosphere in which bullshit is a workable strategy for powers, whether political or economic elites, uh, in which media have arisen that will gladly, enthusiastically carry um, the varieties of bullshit, um, we get a diffusion of, of, of falsehood, falsehood or half-truth, quarter-truth, micro-truth, um, which has never been easier in history, never. Uh, what used to be carried from village to village as rumor about, uh, say, how the Jews were poisoning the wells now flies around the world at the, uh, at the click of a keyboard. Um, there's a study you may have seen refer reference to recently. It was done by uh, some academics at Stanford. They did an experiment with Stanford students in which they uh, tried to track the credibility of a variety of stories. Uh, and Stanford students were more, were quicker to circulate fake news, uh, fraudulent claims, than actual substantiated claims. These were Stanford students, that's where Silicon Valley comes from. Um, so that's where we are. Uh, the question of what to do about it is urgent. Uh, I am a fan of those who would like to educate students one class at a time to see through bullshit uh, and falsity. Uh, the so-called media literacy movement, I think, is dandy. I think periodically it gets elevated in uh, repute in the United States and then the enthusiasm dies down and nothing much happens. Um, but what, what, I, what I really want to, where I want to conclude is by saying that those are, you know, talk about tr truth running around the world, trying to catch up with lies. Media literacy is, uh, is trying to catch up with the, late, with the latest advances in the circulation of propaganda and bullshit. So uh, I don't know whether that's a, a cheery or a, a dire note, uh, but that is the note on which I'll end. Thank you. Hello, everybody. We are living in dark times. Certainly they're the darkest times of my adult lifetime, and they may turn out to be the darkest times in living memory. 
The last years have witnessed a resurgence in the Anglophone world of ethno-nationalism, nativism and political populism. We are witnessing the coarsening of political discourse to a degree that I would hardly have believed possible a decade ago. Every day I find myself asking the immortal words of the talking heads, well, how did I get here? I've come to the conclusion that humanity may be simply psychologically incapable of assimilating the advances of the internet, and certainly not at anything like the speed with which those advances are made. What is incomparably the greatest invention of my lifetime may end up destroying us all. It has led to the alt-right and their evil genius for online shitstorms, the undermining of democratic practice through the infiltration of social media, and on a deeper philosophical level, the dismantling of the very concepts of truth, fact, and reality. We live, we are told, in a world of post-truth, of alternative facts, of fake news, a world in which in the teeth of what, would, what, of what one would think to be absolutely unassailable evidence to the contrary, the President of the United States can insist again and again that the crowd for his inauguration was the biggest in history. This is not a uniquely American problem, of course, but it is one which we in the Anglophone world see writ large in the US. In thinking about this talk, I looked again at Richard Hofstadter's book, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. First published in 1963, this was the great liberal historian's attempt to account for the McCarthy era, which America had just lived through. Through historicizing the issues, Hofstadter demonstrated the ways in which anti-intellectualism is deeply woven into the American grain. And I quote, To students of Americana, the anti-intellectual note so commonly sounded during the 1950s sounded not new at all, but rather familiar. Our anti-intellectualism is in fact far older than our national identity. Nativism, ruralism, and provincialism an exaltation of the practicality and know-how of the common-sense common man. Self-reliance, emphatically including armed self-reliance. A suspicion of central government are all recurring American characteristics, as are, to quote Hofstadter, desire to banish or destroy the United Nations, anti-Semitism, negrophobia, isolationism, a passion for the repeal of the income tax, unquote. In many ways, then, we have been here before. But this is worse. We may end up not with a civil war, but with the collapse of civilization. Anthropogenic climate change is upon us, and its damage may be irreversible, in spite of constant denials from official sources, most of whom will be dead before the worst happens. It seems to me that we are witnessing the decline and fall of the American empire. Most particularly, we are living through its late, late imperial decadent phase. In 1776, rather symbolically in the year of the Declaration of American Independence, Edward Gibbon published the first volume of his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. His monumental account of the first uh, of the inevitable de demise of the greatest of all empires in history was a monetary work a warning to the British Empire, then entering the first great phase of its own imperial expansion. Thomas Arne and James Thompson had written Rule Britannia in 1740. A warning of the vanity of human wishes, 
the transience of power, the ruins of empire. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, be mighty and despair. In the decline of the West, Oswald Spengler posits an historical progression from culture, an opening up of artistic and intellectual possibilities, to civilization, an extensive phase in which culture is not susceptible of improvement, but merely of growth. Imperialism, Spengler writes, is civilization unadulterated and is taken to, as the typical symbol of the end, characterized by petrifacts, dead bodies, amorphous and dispirited masses of men, scrap material from great history. As soon as cultures become civilizations, the seeds of their doom are planted. Once they become empires, they are always already on the slide. As W.B. Yeats is reported to have said in atte after attending the opening and closing night of Alfred Jarry's Ubourois on the 10th of December, 1896, after us, the savage god. What is the responsibility of the university in all of this? What can we do? In part, our responsibility is symbolic. We need to keep going, to do what we do, as visibly as we can in the best way that we can. There are places on earth where civilization is thin. Those tend to be places without universities, or whose universities are under intolerable threat. <coughs> we need to be more confident, less fearful, more willing to set our faces against the tide of the moment. How do we do this? I want to begin with my own discipline, English literature. We all agree that interdisciplinarity is a good thing. Of course it is. But disciplines exist for a reason and have their own history and their own integrity on which we must insist. I sometimes witness an alarming lack of faith in their own discipline amongst professional academics in English departments. I have known colleagues, not my current colleagues, I should say, who have told me that they do not believe in literature or in the category of the literary, literary that there is only writing. Literature may be difficult to define, its definitions may be fuzzy, may bleed into other categories, but that is true of any intellectual endeavour. When asked what I do, I've recently taken de to defining myself emphatically as a literary critic. Why was I so nervous about this? As though the history of the development of institutional literary criticism across the 20th century was not a record of extraordinary intellectual achievement. Conversely, I have noticed colleagues, again, not here, displaying an almost touchingly naive faith in the seeming epistemological absoluteness of the protocols of other disciplines, be they history, sociology, philosophy. If we don't have confidence in our own subjects, what help is there for us? I say this, of course, to begin to close, because our opponents know exactly what they think. If we lack all conviction, they are full of passionate intensity. And what they think is that they want to get rid of us. Intellectuals are dangerous because they are untrustworthy, morally, ethically, or politically questionable. The life of the mind, for some, is effete, unmasculine, and can bespeak sexual unorthodoxy, or even feminism. <laughs> Intellectuals can have 
heterodox religious views or none at all. We encourage personal, sexual, moral, religious and political dissidents. We oppose Brexit. We hate Trump. <laughs> we teach these values to the nation's youth. There are many, including mainstream politicians and widely circulated newspapers, and not just in America, who think, who know, that we must be stopped. We cannot confront such uncertainty, sorry, we cannot confront such terrifying certainty with paralyzing self-doubt. One of the unexpected consequences of postmodernism was that it may have left us with no philosophical ground of being from which to stand and fight, which, believe me, is what we need to do. But, and to close, we do not need only to resist pressure from the populist right. One hears the phrases safe spaces and trigger warnings a lot lately. Of course, universities must be safe spaces, if by that we mean we should afford all members of our community safety from bullying, from sexual harassment, from violence or the threat of violence, from bigotry, racism and hatred, from sexism, homophobia, transphobia, from exploitation and persecution. While not perfect, universities are actually quite good at this, or should be. But not safety from exposure to new ideas, heterodox thinking, the exhilarating dangers of intellectual inquiry. When I was an undergraduate, I was often made to, work, to read works of literature, which blew my mind, rocked my world, shook the foundations, opened my eyes from Blake to Dickens, Wallace Stevens to Toni Morrison, George Eliot to T.S. Eliot. These have formed my political and moral sensibilities. I work on horror, a cultural and artistic form which is often transgressive, rebarbative, obnoxious and ugly, which deliberately and as a central matter of policy sets out to alienate large parts of the population. This is why a significant minority avoids it and a smaller minority wants to ban it outright. The history of horror is also a history of outraged responses to horror. Unless I can teach all of this as honestly and openly as I can, I am in danger of capitulating to the infantilization of my own students. We cannot allow this to happen either, as we will be betraying the future, giving our students no critical intellectual or political tools with which to mount their own resistance to these dark times. Thank you very much. I don't know about you, but I feel like after being in a good session in the gym, <laughs> mentally alert, ready to take on the world. Um, we visited, the earth, we visited the verge of the end of civilization. There is some hope, and, uh, but if we do something about it. So thank you all for being here. I think it's been a really great session. We certainly learned a lot and certainly been provo provoked by our speakers. 
Uh, so thank you all for coming and thanks for speaking. Yes, um, uh, before uh, uh, James had to uh, uh, dash off, so she asked me um, to uh, uh, say two things. Uh, first of all, to, to um, uh, invite you all, uh, should you be hungry, um, to come upstairs for a sandwich. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, secondly, um, uh, I think it, 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 it falls on me on all, all of our behalves to, to, to thank Stephen for, for, for taking the time to come here and to uh, chair this panel. So can we have another rapturous round of applause? <laughs>